Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, or if you don't have one and you would like one, feel free to grab one in the back from the welcome table and feel free to keep it. You can go to John chapter 20 and put a thumb or a finger in John chapter 20, and then if you will, flip backwards to the Old Testament to Psalm chapter 22. So John 20 coming up in a second, but we're going to begin for just a moment in Psalm 22. We love our kids. Uh, we love kids of all ages. We love quiet kids. We love noisy kids that spill their crayon cup. Um, I can preach louder than they can cry or make noise, so don't worry about that. If you have littles, we've got a little nursery area there in the back if you want to hang out with them, um, but do not feel any concern about the noises in our house. That's a good sign, right? Noisy houses are happy houses are our families, so just throw that out there. I want to answer for all of us this morning one incredibly important life-altering question, and that is, why is the resurrection of Jesus good news? Why is it such good news? Um, I'm a child of the 90s, TGIF, every Friday night at 8 o'clock. My favorite show, of course, was Family Matters, aka the Steve Urkel Show. If you're too young to know about that, I pity you. But in the opening credits of Family Matters, they would sing this amazing song. It's a rare condition this day and age to read any good news on the newspaper page. The love and tradition, well, you got the idea. They got it even then in the 90s that it was rare to hear any good news. And we live in a time and a world where it feels like there is nothing but bad news. That was the 90s. They didn't even know anything about 2020 and 2021 and all that it would be and will be. But it's not as if bad things happening is a surprise. I don't have to rehearse for you all the evils of this world. It is enough to say that in our era in particular, the spiral downward, the spirit of secularism continues to grow and their objective has always been to get rid of Jesus. This is nothing new that we see in our world that we want to kill, we want to eliminate Jesus, who he was and who he is. 2,000 years ago they did this. If you were alive in the time of Jesus and you opened up your Bible, your Hebrew Bible, and you opened to the book of Psalms, it would not say a chapter number, it wouldn't say chapter 22. It would say the first line of that psalm restated in Hebrew to tell you what that psalm was going to be about. The chapter numbers were added later. And if you went to what is now chapter 22, the title would be Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. My God, my God. That is funny. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is David, and he's the psalmist, and he's crying out on behalf of God's people. God, why is it all bad news? God, why do bad things happen? Why are we suffering the way that we are? And he's saying, where are you, God? Where are you, God? So listen a little bit further down, though. Listen to Psalm 22. Listen to these words and see if they sound a little familiar to you. This is verses 12 through 18. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks 
to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Psalm 22, written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, written 300 years before crucifixion was even invented on the earth. The very words of Jesus prophesied, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he declared on the cross the exact details of his crucifixion, among many things, that his hands and feet were pierced. Fast forward to the very first Easter morning. It's 33 AD. It's the worst news. Jesus was dead. He had been crucified by his enemies. And for Jesus' followers, all hope was gone. All they had was their fear of the enemy and the shame over their own desertion of Jesus a few hours earlier. But then, good news. Good news began to break out. First, Mary Magdalene, who Jesus had earlier freed from seven demons and had forgiven from a life of horrible sin. She initially despairs when she discovers that the body of Jesus is no longer there. And so she tells Peter and John, and they come running, and they find Jesus' burial cloth, not torn up, not tossed in the corner, but neatly folded and placed in the tomb. And the Bible says that at that moment, they believed. Then two angels appear to Mary Magdalene and they say, why are you weeping? And a moment later, Jesus turns and sees, I'm sorry, Mary turns and sees Jesus face to face. And Jesus greets her with the word, Mary. Hi. And then she ran and told the other disciples, to come and see the resurrected Jesus. That was Sunday morning. Then Sunday evening, Jesus appears to the disciples, except for Thomas, who was not there. And this is where our scripture now, John 20, picks up. John chapter 20, and we're going to look this morning at verses 24 through 29 and see this moment, particularly through the eyes and the experience of the disciple Thomas. Beginning in verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Let's take a moment, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for King Jesus. Thank you for your Son whom you sent. Lord, open our eyes this morning. Refresh us, encourage us, Lord. Fill us with belief in who you are. We submit ourselves to your word and we are thankful for the good news that it contains. In Jesus' name, amen. Three, three reasons the resurrection of Jesus is such good news for us this morning. Number one is this. And we see this in verses 24 and 25, right at the beginning. Jesus' resurrection is good news because it is true. Jesus' resurrection is good news because it is true. Thomas was not there initially because he doubted. We can identify. Because he feared. We can identify. Because he was brokenhearted. We can identify. And he says, unless I see, I will never believe. Maybe you're there and you would say, there was a time in my life when I didn't believe in Jesus, but now I see. Or maybe you're still there today. I don't believe. I I still have doubts of one form or another. Maybe you would say, I'm struggling in my faith. I have doubts. I prayed and, and God didn't answer the way that I expected him to answer my prayer Or I've just got this question, how could a God who loves me so much, how could he let someone that I love die? It's a very real question. It's an important question. It's one that many of us can struggle with. Or maybe it's, how can I believe the Bible? Hasn't it been changed by people over time? How can I believe that it's true? Or, you know, there's so many other philosophies and so many other religions out there. How can just one be true? How can it claim to be true? If you can identify with any of those, I want to encourage you, first of all, that Thomas was a follower of Jesus, and even in that, he still struggled with doubts, with questions. He didn't understand, in particular, the promises of the Word of God, but there was a moment when he saw Jesus that his faith, his belief began to grow. Maybe Thomas had questions like, you have questions today. See, Thomas wanted to see evidence. He wanted to see proof that the resurrection that they were all talking about had really happened. And so verse 25, the disciples tell Thomas, first of all, we've seen Jesus. The very first proof, the very first evidence that we get is the evidence of eyewitnesses. Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, the most important thing is this, Jesus died and then three days later he rose again and he goes on to say, first he was seen by Peter and then he was seen by the disciples and then he was seen by over 500 people at the same time, eyewitnesses. Peter, the Apostle Peter adds this in 2 Peter chapter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, we were eyewitnesses. Of his majesty. Pastor Vodi Bauckham of 2 Peter 1 says this Why would I believe? Why would I choose to believe the Bible and all that it says, particularly about the idea of a man who is God who rose from the dead? And he says this I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It reports supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies prophecies, and it claims to be divine rather than human in origin. Oh, that's why I choose to believe the Bible and what it says about the resurrection. There's not only, though, the evidence of prophecy, I'm sorry, the evidence of eyewitness, there is the evidence of prophecy. Jesus' promise 
Jesus' prophetic word of his own resurrection was so commonplace. It shows up so many times in the Gospels that Jesus' enemies themselves actually make a comment about it. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 63, the priests who killed Jesus say this to the Romans, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, that deceiver said, quote, after three days I will rise. So make sure the tomb is secure. They knew very clearly that Jesus had promised that he was going to rise from the dead. And so they said, make sure that the disciples can't come in and tamper with his grave and make some sort of absurd claim like Jesus actually rose from the dead. But the greatest evidence of all, the tomb is empty. The tomb was empty that day. The tomb is empty today. Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, they were the first to see the tomb empty, but the word was getting out. You know, you think about it, the enemies of Jesus, all they had to do was produce Jesus' body, and this discussion ends. And here we are 2,000 years later. We've not found the body of Jesus. Why? He's still using it. He is in heaven, his glorified body, he's still using it, and one day he will return in that same body to take us home because he's alive. And so if you're going to deal with these things, you've got to make up a couple different lies. One in particular shows up in Scripture, and one has shown up more recently in history. The one more recently in history is the swoon theory, and that is the idea that Jesus somehow did not actually die. That is to say that Jesus survived scourging or whipping, beating, crucifixion by the masters of crucifixion, who verified his death by stabbing him in the side with a spear, then buried him in a cave with no medical attention for three days, no food or no water for three days, wrapped him in over 100 pounds of spices and cloth, and then that Jesus revived, got better, got up, rolled the stone out of the way, defeated the armed Roman guards, and then ran around town playing ghost all day. That's the swoon theory. The one that the Romans go with that was apparently more likely to work in the Bible, it says, was the theory that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. And so that theory goes that the disciples who just the day previous had run away in fear at Jesus' arrest somehow gathered their courage, beat down the professional soldiers who were sworn by threat of death not to allow that to happen who were guarding Jesus' body, and then they snuck the body out of Jerusalem, never to be found again, because again, if there's a body, then this discussion ends. And every disciple, every disciple would proclaim to their dying breath, all of them under torture, that Jesus was the Son of God and that Jesus had risen from the dead. Why would you die for a lie? You wouldn't. Some say that Thomas spoke for the whole world when he says essentially, give me proof and then I'll believe. I think the world's view is more like this. Show me the facts and I'll invent another theory. Show me the facts and I will invent another theory. See, it takes way more faith to believe the swoon theory or the theft theory than it does to believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus. We can identify with Thomas. He doubted, but as we will see, when he was confronted with who Jesus was and the truth of the resurrection, he gave up all else and he believed. Number two, why is the resurrection such good news? Jesus' resurrection is good news because it invites a life-saving response of belief. 
Jesus talks about peace. You know, some of us think that we know how life should go better than God. We can all, we've all been there at some point or another. God, why would you do it that way? You should have done it my way or, or this way. You know, the only reason that I can think of that the Bible includes this little detail that it was eight days later from when Thomas says, I don't believe, to where Jesus shows up and shows himself is to remind us that God is in control of all things. God is in control of the things that scare you and stress you out and the things that you don't understand. He's in control of all of them. And if that wasn't enough to convince us, the very next sentence says, in the ultimate divine mic drop of all time, that the doors were locked and that Jesus just appeared in the room. He walked through the wall, and he's there. Trust Jesus. He can handle whatever wall there may be in your life. He can come through, and he will come through, because he is God. And the very first word that he says to his followers is what? Peace be with you. Shalom be with you. This is peace with God. See, naturally on our own, every single human being is not at peace with God. Rather, every single human being from the moment of their conception is at war with God and enemies of God because of our sin, and that is a huge problem. And the only way that it could be resolved is if God sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to make peace. Romans 5.1 says it most clearly of all, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, It's the same word in Greek as belief. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The city that they're in, Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, it literally means city of peace. But this world on its own has no peace. Jerusalem was anything but peace. Our world is anything but peace. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain promised the people of England peace. In our time, he came home, he said, peace in our time, I give you, after he had made a slightly questionable compromise with an aspiring young politician by the name of Adolf Hitler. The year was 1938. He came home to England and said, I've made peace, peace for our time, peace that will last. And less than a year later, Adolf Hitler plunged the world into World War II. The world does not know peace. It cannot provide peace. It cannot create peace. Peace with God comes through the bloody beating and death of Jesus who came through hell to give us peace with God. But not only do we get peace with God, we get the peace of God thrown in. Look at the book of Philippians. says it well. Chapter 4, do not be anxious about anything. Are you anxious? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So follower of Jesus, child of God, when Jesus comes to you, his first words to you are, peace be with you. And if you would call yourself a wanderer this morning or you have not determined who Jesus is for you in your life, know that what Jesus says first is peace. Do you have that peace? Do you want that peace?
Romans 5.1 also says that we're justified by faith. Justified is the same word as justice, that there is justice somehow accomplished. See, Thomas, when he saw Jesus, what he saw was Jesus' hands, and they weren't clean and beautiful like we saw in the video. Thomas saw that Jesus' hands had been ripped apart by nails. Thomas saw that the side of Jesus had been ripped apart by a Roman spear that would have plunged all the way up and pierced his heart to verify that he was dead. The destruction of Jesus' body, that is the way that peace comes, that is the way that justification comes. And the Bible uses the word justice or justification to help us understand this. The consequences of sin are serious. That's why Jesus was torn apart. That's why Jesus went to the cross, because our sins are a big deal. The very first lie that Satan tells us in the Garden of Eden and through every single one of our lives is our sin is not a big deal. God doesn't minimize sin. He solves sin. He sent Jesus there to fix it. And even the fool of a governor, Pilate, knew that Jesus was innocent. Jesus had committed no sin. He says, this man is innocent. So you need to understand that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the greatest injustice of all time. To solve the greatest problem of all time, our sin, to give the greatest mercy of all time, our salvation, through the greatest exchange of all time, His perfect righteousness for our sin, to bring about the greatest reconciliation of all time, us with God, the Creator, by Jesus, the greatest King, the only King for all time. The sinless Jesus died for your sins so that you wouldn't have to. That's justice and mercy. R.C. Sproul writes this, why do bad things happen to good people? It's a question so many of us ask. He says this, that only happened once, and he volunteered. Only once, and Jesus volunteered. For all those who will believe in him, he will trade your sin that deserves the cross and give you his perfect righteousness that deserves heaven. That is the message of Good Friday. That is the message of Easter and that that good news is available to all people regardless of what you've done, regardless of what mistakes you've made, regardless of what your story is. Every tribe, tongue, and nation can have salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ. Third and finally, Jesus' resurrection is good news because it proves that Jesus is Lord. It proves that Jesus is Lord. Thomas saw Jesus' wounds, and his response is, my Lord and my God. In Greek, he would have said, my Kyrios and my Theos. If he were speaking in Hebrew, he would have said, my Yahweh and my Elohim. The point is, he is God. Thomas didn't respond and say, oh, Jesus, you're like a God, like the Mormons falsely teach. He did not say, oh, you're a good prophet under Muhammad. He did not say, oh, you're a really moral guy who dispenses for me my daily dose of moral therapeutic deism. That's not what he said. He said, and he made it personal, my Lord and my God When he saw Jesus who had gone to the cross, who is now standing in front of him alive with the wounds to prove that this is Jesus. And then Jesus says this, you've seen me, 
but blessed are those who haven't seen me and still believe. Jesus is saying here, faith is better than sight. Did you get that? Faith is better than observation. We love science. We all love science. Science can only speak to what is observable, measurable, and repeatable. As Christians, we love science, and we love history because both of them continue to confirm the truth of the Word of God. But Jesus is saying here that science observation has its limitations. Faith does not. He says, blessed are those who have not seen me standing in front of them, but have still seen me by faith. I have seen Jesus. I've never seen him standing in front of me. I've never put my hands in the holes in his hands. I've never felt the hole in his side from the spear, but I have seen Jesus. I have seen Jesus forgive me of my sin. I have seen Jesus answer prayer. I have seen Jesus heal people who were sick. I have seen Jesus raise people who spiritually were dead to life. I have seen Jesus change things in response to prayer. I have seen Jesus love me and others like a father in a way that no one and no thing ever could. I have seen Jesus by faith, and what he is saying is so can you. You don't have to have seen his wounds. You can see him. And if he is Lord, if he's Lord, then that means life. If Jesus is Lord, that means life for you. Question, why did John write the Gospel of John? It's a great question. I'm glad that you asked that. Let's look at John chapter 20 and verse 31 where John tells us, here's why I wrote the story of Jesus down. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. If Jesus is Lord, then that means that we can have life. And if you have accepted Jesus as Lord, then that means that you possess life. Some of you all don't have life right now. You are obviously alive, but you are lacking in life. And you find yourself filled instead with anger or bitterness or hopelessness or sadness or grief and embarrassment over sin that you cannot seem to defeat on your own. Past, present failures. What Jesus says is, I am Lord and I have conquered them all. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered all of it. So do you want to be free? Do you want to have life? Jesus says, it is in me, it is in my name. New life begins when you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Why do we do Easter eggs and Easter bunnies? Because those little Easter eggs, those little baby Easter bunnies symbolize for us new life, new birth, language that the Bible and the New Testament is filled with when it comes to Jesus and in particular to the moment we call Easter where death was conquered and replaced with life. Many of you know our sister Kathy Dean who passed away just a few days ago, a woman of great faith and of great faithfulness. My grandfather Harris passed away three years ago 
yesterday, the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And when I think about the, the loss of people that I love, that we love, I think of many scripture, but I also think of powerful words by Billy Graham. Billy Graham said this, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. If Jesus is Lord, it means life. And life means that death no longer has the final word. Jesus has one. Present, perfect, tense. Something that has been completed in the past that has continual, perpetual, eternal implication for the future. Jesus has one. Do not live any longer as if Jesus has lost. Jesus is not in the grave. The grave is empty and Jesus is king. Amen? We live in victory. So if you need power, look to the one who has power over the grave. If you need healing, look to the one who raised Lazarus and himself from the dead. If you need wisdom to understand the times, then look to the one who created the universe. If you need forgiveness, look to the one who willingly went to the cross for you. If you need truth in a world of lies and deception, then look to the one who said, I am the truth. And if you need holiness as you stumble under the weight of your sin, look to King Jesus who swallowed up your sin and death and traded it and gave you his perfect righteousness so that when God the Father looks at you now in Christ, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And that means finally that if Jesus is Lord and we have life, then we have been given a mission while we are still here on earth. We say our mission here at New City Church is to glorify God by being and making followers of Jesus Christ that comes out of the Great Commission. Jesus said it first. We didn't have to invent it. That we've been given a mission to share the good news of Jesus. It begins with this. In Jesus, you are loved. In Jesus, you've been given a new family. And in Jesus, you have been given a call, a mission to share the good news that replaces all of the bad news, that conquers all of the bad news. Psalm 22, it began with bad news. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus declared it on the cross. Listen to how Psalm 22, in the Old Testament, a thousand years before Jesus came to earth, listen to how it ends. It ends with worldwide praise. It ends with eternal life. Psalm 22, verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation, that's us. My vows I will perform before those who fear him, that's us. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Are you afflicted? Eat of the good news of Jesus and you will be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. That's what we're going to do. May your hearts live forever. That's an Old Testament promise of eternal life and resurrection. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules, present, perfect, tense, over the nations. Amen and amen. Let's pray to King Jesus.